This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist Podcast. This is your host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is your co-host, Philip Collins from Montclair, New Jersey. Snowy, Montclair, New Jersey. And I'm Peter Hopper. I'm joining from New Jersey as well, from snowy Ridgewood, New Jersey, with two, two feet of fresh snow on the ground. Oh my God. Wow. Well, Peter, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Let's start with a brief introduction of who you are. So again, Peter Hopper, I'm currently a, a partner at a private equity firm in Boston, Abbey Partners. Prior to being at Abri, I was one of the co-founders of a boutique investment bank in New York called DH Capital, which over the years became premier advisor to the data center sector. Um, prior to that, I was uh, the CEO of a private equity-backed company in the ISP space called Bureau Communications. And prior to that, I worked for a family-held cable television company, which was really my first introduction to telecommunications. Um, And that was sort of my first real job out of college after a brief stint trading foreign exchange uh, on Wall Street for a couple of years. Uh, There there are so many reasons why I love you. I'm not going to go into them on this on this thing because it'll just embarrass you and probably embarrass me more. We haven't had traditionally finance people on our podcast, Um, you know, the the evil money, the evil uh, Monty Burns of of our world. Uh, And there are plenty of them. You, unfortunately, for or unfortunately for them, fortunately for all of us, are not one of those those evil ones. So our goal will the fire that will the fire that I breathe burn you guys through the probably probably, it might it might Uh, it depends it depends the uh, depends if you have five G so. You know, one of the things I've always loved about hearing you speak and the way you approach things, and one of our goals is the demystification of our world. And, you know, you have this kind of plain spoken approach with understanding the fundamentals and explaining our industry, the industry of, you know, mission critical infrastructure and data center and cloud and how they integrate with each other um, in a way that is is unique and, and kind of matter of fact. Um, and, and I've loved it. And it's it's why I've, you know, among, among the many reasons why I've come to it admire you over the years. Thank and, you, Phil. I am blushing now. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. I see that. And you know, with a with a haircut, it's a full headed blush. It's not there's exactly. you can't hide it anywhere. My God. You can't hide it. Right. So yeah. so I guess the question is, how has that experience from finding out the, you know, getting involved with telecommunications from, you know, the world of, of coax and, and cable TV, yeah. um, uh, kind of informed your ability to 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 not be caught up in some of the hoopla and, and confusion that, that sometimes surrounds our world? Well, I the reason I sort of mentioned the earlier part of my background is I, I really have felt as I moved from, you know, from different finance related jobs in the sector, I consider my brief stints on the operating side to be a huge advantage, quite frankly, coming to finance from a little bit of operating side, because I think, you know, if you spend some time actually in a business involved in running a company, you sort of understand why that light blank screen and that light blinks red. And it gives you an appreciation for the fact that running a business and building a company is way more than, you know, an Excel spreadsheet exercise. And I do think that sometimes people that just come through a traditional finance background, you know, college to a internship at a big bank, a training program for a couple of years, and then into, you know, whether it's private equity or hedge funds or whatever, you know, I think without that hands-on operating experience, I think some of this stuff can be a little too 
sort of too much of just a Excel exercise and they don't appreciate the actual blocking and tackling, you know, that goes into running a company every day. And I think that experience that I had being on the operating side in several different roles gave me that foundation in like sort of what drives the business, you know, what is the value proposition that the customers are looking for? You know, how does the infrastructure kind of marry up to deliver different services? Um, and, you know, it also obviously exposed me to the telecommunications space, which is such an interesting dynamic part of our economy, only made more so, by the way, by the pandemic, as we've seen. I mean, we've seen like two or three years of cloud adoption happen or, you know, maybe maybe seven years of cloud adoption happen in one year, just as we've all moved to learning online, you know, doing our business online, watching all of the video that we consume, you know, online through streaming services. I mean, not to mention just the shopping, you know, having everything delivered to our house now versus going out to stores to get it. You know, all of that stuff now, it relies on the plumbing of the digital, you know, digital infrastructure that's been built. And I have a, a, fa a favorite saying that I stole from somebody um, it was one of the founders uh, of a company called NetAccess in New Jersey, uh, Alex Rubenstein. And Alex coined the phrase, which I've used over and over again, so I want to give him credit. Um, if you think the cloud is going to grow, which we probably all do, then obviously we need more sky to put it in. And the data center is the sky. So, you know, I mean, it was sort of a very, an interesting quip that he, he dropped in a meeting one day. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. I mean, that is like, that is the whole thing in a nutshell. I mean, if the cloud is going to grow and we're going to consume more content, you know, digitally, and we're going to, you know, do school online and all this other stuff, which we've now discovered is so convenient and so powerful, you know, we need more data centers, we need more servers, we need more fiber. And, you know, it creates this very dynamic industry where there's so much opportunity for career path and, and whatnot. I'm so happy that I got exposed to it early on. And, and I've stayed in it because it's really a, it's a fun space. And there are a lot of great entrepreneurs like yourself, Phil, who've operated in the space. And, you know, you just meet these super interesting people succeeding and building great careers and building great companies. And it's really, it's really uplifting. You know, I found that it just really reaffirmed my belief in, in like the country. Like it's just, there's so much opportunity and watching all these entrepreneurs deploy capital, create jobs, you know, create wealth for themselves, their shareholders, their employees. It's really been a really just uplifting experience. Looking looking back, you went to college and got a degree in finance. Yes. When was the turning point that you decided that you've got to look in telecommunication, connectivity, internet, the cloud, and so on and so forth? What was the driving factor behind that? Well, I'd love to say I had some big grand plan or this epiphany one day, but it's really a lot simpler than that. My father-in-law, who was very much my mentor in business, um, was an early cable television entrepreneur. And... There, there came a point uh, several years after I got out of college where he had built up a very successful cable television company, but he was looking to expand. And in order to expand, he was bringing in some outside equity capital and he needed some additional um, executive help. Just, you know, hey, we're going to buy some systems, you know, come work for me, come work for me. It's going to be really exciting. And, you know, he was my mentor and it was a great opportunity. And I sort of leapt at the opportunity to jump from, you know, trading foreign exchange at that point, which I did like, it was fun, but I sort of said, I'll be dead in five years if I keep doing this. It was, you know, super stressful, you know, a lot of, a lot of drinking every night. It was almost like being on a sports team. Um, it was a lot of fun, but I could tell that it wasn't how I wanted to spend the next 20 years of my life because I wouldn't, I wouldn't live that long. So I left to join him at his cable television business and 
did a variety of different operating roles. And that's what sort of brought me into telecom. Nabil, I'd, I'd like to make sort of one point to, to your listeners that I think is really important from my experience, which is one thing for me, my career has not been a straight line at all. One thing has always led to another. Um, so quite frankly, some of the things that didn't work out very well were the most valuable experiences I had. And they sort of taught me important lessons that I then applied going forward in new things and allowed me to be really successful. And, and if I could digress for one second, if that's okay, I'll give you the prime example of that. So after working for my father-in-law for several years, we very successfully grew the company. And I, I don't know if you guys remember when Paul Allen decided that he wanted to be in the cable television business. And he ran or he had his wired world um, concept. And it was sort of early days of cable modems, but he could see, as many could see, that you know that was going to be the broadband pipe to the house. And he ran around and acquired a bunch of cable companies. And my father-in-law's company was the last one, basically, last big one that he acquired. So prior to selling, though, we had begun acquiring all the dial-up ISPs that served the areas where we had cable properties. And we felt like, boy, this makes sense. You know, we're going to roll cable modems out at some point. We already probably have a billing relationship with most of these people because they're taking cable television from us. So it's sort of a natural to get into the Internet access business. And then as we roll out cable modems, we can convert them from the dial-up connection to the broadband connection. And we've already got a billing relationship with them. So there are a lot of synergies to doing this. And so we did a series of acquisitions where we acquired dial-up ISPs, right? We all remember getting on the internet that way, you know, the modems talking to each other and the slow connection. Well, in any event, it was a private equity firm in Boston, Great Hill Partners, which um, may be a name that's familiar to people. They've been investors in the sector several different times. They had very successfully taken a company public in the dial-up space called Voyager.net if you remember that name. And they wanted to do another dial-up ISP roll-up. So they saw that the cable company was being sold and they knew that we had been acquiring ISPs and they reached out to me, John Hayes, one of the founders of Great Hill reached out to me and said, Hey, what are you doing next? You know, are you going to, you going to do something after the cable company gets sold? And I'm like, yeah, I need to keep working. Um, and I really want to keep working. And he said, all right, why don't you come up to Boston and I've got an idea I want to run by you. So he ran the idea by me of running a, a roll-up of, of dial-up ISPs in the southeastern United States. And they wanted to back it with their capital. And they were looking for a team to execute the plan. So um, I shortly before the cable company got sold, I left to form a company called Duro Communications. And Duro Communications immediately embarked on a very aggressive acquisition strategy in the Southeast, buying up ISPs in places like Orlando and Melbourne, Florida, coastal North Carolina. Um, and you know, for a while, it looked like it was gonna be a great success. We were buying things left and right. Um, quite frankly, you know, initially integrating them fairly well, but very quickly we, you know, sort of bit off more than we could chew, you know, in all honesty. And you know, the integration wasn't really happening as well. And not only that, but we were buy, buying companies that were doing 1995 dial-up internet. And very quickly, Net Zero came along and said, oh, you know, what you're doing for 1995, we'll do for free. And so customers began leaving us to go to cheaper alternatives. And we weren't signing as many new customers up to replace them. And we had borrowed, you know, a bunch of money from banks to help finance some of the acquisitions. And where I'm going here is it ended very badly, unfortunately. But you know, from that experience, one of the ISPs we acquired was in Orlando, Florida, and it was founded by a guy named Rich Lee. And Rich and I became very good friends. Phil's laughing because he knows where I'm going here. Um, so in any event, when 
when I left Duro at the uh, at the end of 2000 and sort of left a a burning you know hot mess in John's lap you know you know God bless him because he still talks to me it um, it was clear that it was not going to work out very well and borrowed more money than we could pay back and we were filed to come public but the Nasdaq had cracked for good so we weren't going to get public and you know I had to downsize the company substantially which was incredibly painful went through a series of of rifts. Um, so I had to learn, you know, that whole, you know, experience, which was new to me of, you know, all right, now you got to cut costs, not, you know, lay people off and, you know, sort of play defense, not offense. And, you know, I learned a lot of very important lessons from that experience. Um, and it really gave me the respect for how important it is to operate a business well. Yeah, the finance stuff is sexy and buying companies is all sexy. But if you can't operate it right, you'll get yourself in a lot of trouble quickly. So, I mentioned the Rich Lee story, though, because out of out of these setbacks often comes great opportunity. So I mentioned Rich Lee. Uh, we had acquired his ISP and he and I became very close friends. And when I left um, when I left Duro, uh, a good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Joe Duggan, who'd been a very successful cable television investment banker, reached out to me and said, hey, what are you doing now? You know, what are you going to do now? And I said, you know what, Joe, I just want to catch my breath for a little bit. Uh, but, you know, let's get together and talk. And we got together and we talked about maybe buying some companies. But, you know, that was during like so the dot-com meltdown. And pretty quickly we figured out that, look, there's a huge opportunity to start an advisory business that focuses on internet, infrastructure, cable television. You know, all these sort of themes are coming together, creating a lot of demand for broadband. And all this money has been invested all over the place and it's all got to get figured out somehow. And, it, we've got, you know, the, the right Rolodex, we've got financial capabilities, and Pete, you know how the pieces fit together. There's a real good opportunity here to build an advisory firm, which is how DH Capital started. One of the very first things we did at DH is there was a company in North Carolina that had entered bankruptcy that had a small data center asset and some managed services. And it came to our attention, and I called up Rich Lee and said, Rich, there's something in North Carolina that you need to go look at because he was a great operator and I knew that he could figure this out. So he went up to North Carolina, looked at these assets in bankruptcy that we had identified and said, I want to buy this. Can you help me buy it? So we're like, yeah, sure. So we put a little money together, um, invested it behind Rich. Rich had some money that he put in and that company that we bought for a couple million dollars became Hosted Solutions which, you know, in six or seven years was sold for $140 million to a private equity firm, Avery, that I now work for. And then several years later, it continued to grow. Rich continued to run it. And it was sold for $310 million to Windstream. So, you know, again, out of a huge setback at Duro, you know, I met Rich. And, um, you know, that led to, in some respects, founding DH Capital and doing one of our best deals we ever did, both from an investing standpoint and an advisory standpoint. Um, so it just, you know, it just goes to show like one thing leads to another, you know, work out for Windstream. I'm just kidding. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it worked out. Okay. They ended up selling it to tier point and, you know, they had grown it and it was a very important deal for them at the time because they weren't in the data center or managed services business at all. And their customers were dying for it, but ultimately it was deemed to be non core their you know, core business of fiber and telephone service. So they ended up divesting it, but you know, it worked out great for Rich, obviously great for us, really well for Avery. And then just to come full circle, so now I'm, I'm sort of building and running DH Capital and John Hayes from Great Hill had made an investment in a company called Lattices, which Phil, you probably remember, very successful data center managed services company. 
And it came time to sell Lattices. And by then, DH had really established itself as the best firm doing this, getting the best valuations for their clients. And Great Hill um, selected DH to, to sell Lattices. And we uh, advised them on a very successful sale to Zayo. And John and I, you know, got to work very closely together again. Very, you know, very successful outcome. So that was wonderful coming off the setback that Duro had been. And then that success with Lattices led to our um, involvement with Great Hill on Ascenti in South America, which became by far the dominant data center provider in Latin America, primarily Brazil, which DH um, put several rounds of financing together for and participated in a couple of them. Um, I actually served on the board with John and the CEO. And then when it came time to exit that business, Great Hill hired us to do that. And we had a very successful sale to Digital Realty. So again, you know, things come full circle. That's one of the wonderful things about this industry is it's very deep and rich in terms of relationships and interconnections. Lots of people know each other. And there's sort of a whole ecosystem that, you know, you, you kind of run into the same people over and over again. And, you know, it sort of really rewards people who, you know, kind of do the right thing and, you know, treat people the right way and, you know, are honorable, have good integrity. You know, you tend to run into people over and over again. And if you've had good experiences, you do business together again and again and again. And it's it's really wonderful in that regard. Absolutely. So a couple of questions that come to mind. Uh, first of all, just curious, based on your experience of the last couple of decades being in the financial part of the business, how much total transaction value have you conducted? I know I have these numbers, but I think it, at DH... Just keeping it to DH, I think we did, you know, 30, 35 billion worth of transactions over the years, if you add them all up. Um, many of those were advisory assignments where we were selling, you know, we sold companies like Ascenti, uh, Telex, um, Infomart. So, you know, some big deals that were multi-billion dollar transactions and then a lot of, you know, 400, 500 million dollar type, type transactions as well. And DH continues to be very successful. They really haven't missed the beat at all. Um, I, I left um, about nine months ago to go to Avery, but they've continued to be very successful. No surprise. You know, great, great group of people. They're very talented. So it's nice to see them continue to be so successful. So now being a finance guy and the fact that the technology is evolving every day, there's something new literally by the minute. Mm-hmm. How, how do you keep up? It's, it's, it's a great story. Finance guy getting a telecommunication or cable business to understanding ISPs, to understanding SaaS and data center and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And we are evolving. I mean, with the pandemic that we are in, I mean, there's workforce yeah. transformation, business transformation, technology yeah. at our fingertips. How do you, being a finance guy, keep up with this mass change that's happening on a daily basis? I mean, I, I'd like to think I fully keep up with it. Uh, you know, I, I don't, but I think one of the things I've always, I've always been really interested in, you know, the why, like how do things actually work? Like how does that service actually get delivered? You know, what differentiates the way Phil wants to do it versus the way Cyrus One or Digital Realty wants to do it. And I think if you have that curiosity of really understanding how things work, and how the business models of companies in the sector differ from each other, you begin to appreciate the nuances of, oh, wow, there's a hole in the market here. Like this, this is being done in a very sort of inelegant way. You know, the customers aren't super happy with the service they're getting. It's really hard for the company to provide the service. There's got to be a better way to do this. And then someone comes along with, you know, sort of a way to do it better. And your, your antenna goes up. You're like, oh, you know, I know that there's a real need for that because I've watched this problem, you know, evolve over several years with companies we've worked with. So 
this could be a really interesting new business given what they're trying to do. But I think it's sort of a fundamental curiosity of really trying to understand like the why, you know, behind it, not just the numbers, not just they generate this much revenue and, you know, this much margin, but like, like how do they generate that revenue? What is the service they provide and how do they provide it? And I think that's the key differentiator. I mean, I think in one of, one of the main complaints of, you know, private equity coming in and taking over a lot of these assets is that you just, the, the passion that goes into a, a company that is being operated by a founder yep. is just something that's really difficult to capture in a bottle. And, and through like the traditional, you know, algorithms that multiple EBITDA, you know, becomes a kind of depersonalization of, you know, what, what makes these companies the way they are. And I think one of the key differentiators that, that I've always found with you and the, the members of, of your circle that you surrounded yourself by was that understanding that company culture, zeitgeist, you know, that, that feeling is... Um, is magic. You know, there's not really a valuation on it. That intangible yeah. thing is is what made the company successful. And simply by putting assets together that look well and look good on a spreadsheet, you don't necessarily extract the, the most value, but by building the right culture, you know, yeah. like like fostering the right level of teamwork and, you know, creating the right value system within the organization. Those are the intangibles that separate the great companies from the good companies. And I think the most successful investors and private equity firms, you know, really get that and appreciate that. And, you know, I would say it's no, it's no accident that I'm at Abri because we always felt that among many private equity firms out there, they really got that. And that was a big part of their success as a, as an, a private equity firm. But I would, you know, sort of say, you know, there, there's, there are other firms as well that I think have that to a good degree too. I, I highlight Great Hill, you know, sort of like, are you fundamentally at the end of the day, are you in the foxhole with the operators or are you just in the foxhole with the finance department? And I think the great firms, the Avery's, you know, are ones that really get in the foxhole with the operators and appreciate those intangibles, Phil, and understand those are what differentiate. I mean, they're very sophisticated financially, goes without saying, but they appreciate the nuances of what separates the great companies from the, the good companies. And I think what, you know, one of the things I've always tried to tell our listeners and, and reiterate is, you know, like Nabil had said earlier, there are so many different areas of our industry that you can get involved in. And we would urge people to get involved in all of them, you know, at, uh, you know, what, what we've always preached um, at, at my place is the idea that, you know, we don't compartmentalize our, our employees. We allow them to, um, you know, dabble in cooling, dabbling in network, dabbling yeah, in you right. know, all of these different areas yeah. because that experience will inform yeah. things that you can't particularly see in that moment. That's right. And I think that's that whole idea of like one thing leads to another. Like if you keep your eyes open, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think anybody in, in life, you know, if you focus on things that truly interest you, your chance of being successful at them rises dramatically because you're engaged you know, it's sort of something that you want to want to be doing. It's a little bit like gravity. It kind of pulls you forward. Um, but I think part of that is like when you get into, you know, if you got into an organization, Phil, like, you know, one of the companies you've been involved with, like keep your eyes open for activities within that organization that, that interests you, whether it's maybe it's construction or it's the electrical side of things or it's customer service or it's marketing and sales, you know, and and if you are keep your eyes open for interesting opportunities, one door leads to another. And I know that's kind of a cliche-ish, but, you know, I can give you example after example of, you know, people who ultimately went on to great success 
you know, just kind of kept their eyes open for, oh, that looks like an interesting opportunity and I should spend some time on that. And they do that. And that leads to another opportunity to another. And pretty soon they look back and like, wow, I've made a lot of progress here. You know, COVID-19 has totally transformed our lives whereby cloud or the digital transformation or the workforce transformation that was going to take, you know, a decade as of March of 2020 has taken months. Yes. Based on where you sit today in the financial and, and the investment segment of the business, what are some of the key initiatives that you're seeing, some of the key investments that you're looking at, and uh, some of the cool technologies or, or upcoming technologies that are getting your attention? Well, I think um, probably like the biggest thing on the horizon, which you know gets a lot of press, and we've all talked about it, is you know five G. You know that amount of bandwidth, you know in your in your handset, you know the things that that will enable you to do on this you know Apple iPhone or Samsung device or whatever your smartphone device is, is really unprecedented. Um, but again, to make that all work, back to the infrastructure, you know that requires a lot of additional infrastructure to be deployed. Things like a lot more fiber deeper and deeper into the network, you know, to the tower sites, because the amount of, I mean, think of the amount of data that's now got to flow from the server at the data center, like the video stream, just for example, right. You know, it's got to flow from the server uh, in the data center, you know, over, over terrestrial, you know, network stuff, fiber, whatever, you know, through some switches, through some routers to the individual tower site that your cell phone is talking to, then it's going to go up the tower, to the 5G radios and then over the airwaves to your device. And think about, you know, 20 people, you know, all with their smartphones pulling down a different video stream and the amount of data that that implies has to get to that tower. Um, So we need, you know, we need a lot more fiber, you know, deeper into our networks. And, you know, again, we need more data centers with more servers to serve up all this, all this content that we're consuming. so, you know, I think I think 5G, but 5G enables that. If you don't have that bandwidth from the radio to the handset, you can't do a lot of these things. And as we think about, you know, you know, Internet of Things, you know, or driverless cars, you know, the amount of data that needs to go back and forth between, you know, things and the, you know, the compute and the and the data storage that, you know, takes all that data and turns it into something useful. You know, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to get built to support all that. Um, so. You know, we think, you know, from an investing standpoint, you know, I think Abri has been really good over the years in particular at, um, you know, sort of identifying like where where's the sweet spot of the sector. You know, for a while it was retail co-location and interconnection. Um, so, you know, sort of a telex business model. Um, then it became managed, you know, co-location with managed services, more the hosted solutions model. Then it became like very sophisticated, like private cloud type stuff, you know, a data pipe, a rack space. And, you know, we think sort of moving forward and then wholesale data center stuff, you know, the hyperscalers, you know, arrived on the scene. And then all of a sudden the real opportunity was building these massive data centers with, you know, 20, 30 megawatts and leasing capacity to Google, Microsoft, Amazon. Sky. Right. And, you know, that's many of those are still great opportunities. I mean, you know, um, digital realty and Equinix continue to do, you know, incredibly well with, you know, highly interconnected data center sites um, that they operate around the world. And certainly there's continues to be tremendous growth, you know, serving the hyperscalers needs both domestically and internationally. Um, So those are themes that you can still invest behind for sure. But we think kind of the big next thing is content is going to continue to move 
further to the edge of the network, closer to the eyeballs consuming it. And there's just lots of reasons for that, but mainly it's just, it's a much better experience, right? I mean, Microsoft has discovered this with Office 365. You know, if if big financial firms are running very, very large, you know, financial models, and it's being, you know, served off a server in Ashburn and being used in New York, you know, if you don't have the right connectivity, that doesn't necessarily work that well. So, however, if you put that workload in 111.8 or 60 Hudson, and it's just a very short connection to the office building where people are consuming it, it works great. So we just think that's just an example of why content needs to move closer and closer to the eyeballs consuming it around the world. And that creates big opportunities to invest in um, infrastructure at the edge, at the network edge. Um, And, you know, is the network edge the base of a cell tower? Maybe ultimately it is, or is it Memphis, Tennessee and uh, Knoxville, Tennessee? So that that eyeballs in those places where there are a lot of people are not being served out of Ashburn, Virginia, but maybe are being served out of infrastructure in Knoxville. Um, so we think there's very investable themes around ideas like that. And I think um, I, one of the things that that I, I'm going to take credit for, and I think I coined it, is that because the uh, the world is circular, at least in yep. most of our opinions, as far as um, we know, <laughs> as far as we know, there actually is no edge. The edge is everywhere, right? Because yeah, I, it's I all it's right. all interconnected. Yeah. Um, not as brilliant as Rubenstein's, of course, but I'll <laughs> take credit. For it. No, um, I mean, yeah. Phil. I mean, to your point, I remember. Um, you know, the show we all used to go to HCTS in Las Vegas, which was a, you know, a great event, industry event. And DH was very involved in that as a sponsor. And we got a speaking slot because we were a sponsor. And I, or one of my partners would give sort of a talk every year on sort of trends in the industry, you know, update on M&A activity, valuations. And we used to joke, it was called, you know, for guys like Phil, it was called the net worth talk, you know? Oh, what deals are happening? What are companies worth? What am I worth based on the business that I have? So, you know, we used to get good attendance to it because everybody's always interested in what their net worth is. And what's nice about it is right after that, we would go to the bar and I'd be able to drown my sorrows because I answered that question for myself. (laughs) So that leads into a question. How has COVID impacted the merger and acquisition play in our industry? I would say the activity level is a little reduced for a couple of reasons. I mean, valuations have remained very stable, arguably maybe risen a little bit, but activity levels have probably come down a little bit for a couple of reasons. One, I would say is, um, you know, M&A requires um, debt financing to be available typically. So, you know, the, the pandemic sort of created a lot of upheaval in the, in the debt market. So the banks were obviously a little reticent to loan money as freely as the pan- pandemic hit because, you know, natural concerns over, a lot of the loans they'd already made to companies, they were worried, you know, are we going to get paid back just given the impact of COVID? And then I think investors, certainly this, you know, would be true of us and many others, you know, we were sort of constantly looking at, at businesses and saying, okay, is this business, you know, resistant to the impact of the pandemic? Because obviously many businesses were, you know, dramatically impacted. So anything in hospitality, you know, if you were invested in hotels or anything travel related, you know, your business got, you know, vaporized by um, by COVID. But, you know, I think one of the things that people have appreciated after, you know, a year going by is how resilient the business models within, you know, digital infrastructure, you know, really have, have, have shown themselves to be during COVID because of all this d- demand that, you know, online learning and everything, all these behaviors that we've now adopted have created so much demand for 
digital infrastructure that, you know, the existing customers that you have have remained very stable. You've seen a lot of new demand. So initially people were hesitant to invest new money because of the fear that COVID might, you know, really negatively impact the, you know, the companies. I think as, as time has gone by, people have seen, no, these businesses are actually thriving in COVID and, you know, might be like a safe haven, if anything, to invest in during the pandemic. And then once the pandemic's over, um, probably, you know, their prospects even improve as many of these behaviors, you know, will probably stick and companies will, you know, invest in their, in their systems and whatnot more freely once, once the pandemic's over and the economy improves. So activity level has been down. We think it's picking up and will, you know, really accelerate over the next 12 months. But valuations have actually stayed very stable, if not risen. Uh, one of the things that that is always struck me about the private equity world, you know, with you and Adam and the whole the whole the whole mammoth is just the number of miles that you traveled on a yearly basis. I cannot I can only imagine how many you know diamond cards, platinum cards, Nabil too. He was a guy who's traveling all over the place because apparently just hanging out in Kona all day is not uh, is not it's not where customers come. Yeah, no, United United Airlines, you know, used to used to love me, and it, I said that one of the greatest memes during this whole pandemic is uh, it's really my favorite is an email with with the following meme. So getting getting an email from your your airline that we're all in this together. When my bag was 52 pounds, I was all- <laughs> <laughs> It's totally true. It's totally yeah, right? true. Um, um, so the question is, how much of that do we think is permanent? I mean, I know a lot of the, the, the M&A world and, 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 and the folks in, in private equity, a lot of that interaction was always done in person. You wanted to touch and feel and see the asset yes. and, and meet yeah. the people. Um, yeah. And you just don't get the same, you know, the 2D Zoom uh, type of calls. Obviously, it's 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 what we've had to do. But how much of that do you think uh, has some level of permanence to it? And, and and how do you think, you know, travel is going to be prioritized? or No, I think, I think, you know, at least in what we do, you know, tr- the ability to travel and go out and meet people, you know, as you're able to do that, that will pick back up very quickly. Because, you cannot you cannot do justice to building relationships with people and really understanding, you know, what makes a management team tick, a business tick, without getting out there, meeting people in person, seeing their operation, you know, just getting a sense of the vibe of the place, right? And you know, as as great as Zoom and some of these tools are, they they don't fully replace, um, you know, the ability to do that. Now, I think Zoom will continue to be very powerful, maybe sort of for the first you know, when you first learn of an opportunity, oh, you know, can we get on a Zoom and just kind of meet at least, you know, somewhat informally over over the computer and, you know, learn a little bit before you hop on an airplane and go out to the West Coast to meet. But but the need to get out and meet people is is palpable. And it's something that I always enjoyed so much about, you know, my work was, you know, the chance to meet guys like you and these really interesting entrepreneurs doing interesting things and that's so important to making investments and whatnot. So yeah, it'll come back. I think, I think people, you know, like PTC, right. I, I can't say how many people I connected with over sort of a three or four day period. That's that all said the same thing. Like, Oh my God, we should be in Honolulu right now at PTC. Right. Like wait to get back there next year. And I think you'll see, you know, there's just immense pent up demand to like get back out and, and meet people. I mean, look, we're social beings, right. We, we fundamentally want to be with other people and socialize and engage in person. And I don't think COVID has changed that. I mean, we've learned how to work around it, but once we're able to do it again, I think it'll come back quickly. 
Yeah, hopefully there's some sort of a normalcy uh, over the over the next few months or year. One question that I've got for you is: I consider the era that we live in the gold rush yeah. to be the date the data rush. From your experience, or over the twenty years or so that you've been in the financial industry, have you seen a major shift of uh, acquisitions, investments from the commodities like oil and gas to to data? And if so, where do you think we are headed with it? What's what's next? Are we going to keep investing at the scale that we have in the last decade? Is it going to accelerate at a significant cager? I, I think over the last you know twenty years or so that I've been involved, I think you know the realization that. You know, and, and again, I, I, I borrow phrases from people that I know and like who I think are really smart and talented. So Mark Ganzi, right, who many of you probably know, CEO of, of uh, Colony Capital, you know, formerly Digital Bridge. Um, you know, he talks about, you know, these are the railroads of the future. You know, these fiber networks and data centers, these are the railroads of, you know, the, the early 19th century. You know, they're the things that are connecting, you know, our economy together and making it all work. And I think we are... Um, I think we are, you know, very early still, Nabil, in the game here, and I think people have realized how powerful these big macro trends are in the background, pushing on all this stuff, and that they're nowhere near over. So I, I think you're going to continue to see lots of investment because the the demand is there and the returns are there to make those investments. Commercial real estate in major yes. cities, you know, has always been like where, you know, the uh, the, the, the Montgomery Burnses of society uh, lived, you know, these fat cats where their valuations continue to go up and, and they weren't as badly impacted by, you know, the, the real estate bubble that burst that, you know, was disproportionately impacted, you know, banks and, and, and a lot of small time, you know, mortgage holders for residential properties. Do you think something like a pandemic where, you know, uh, a company Companies have finally um, enhanced their digital infrastructure to allow for effective, you know, work from home uh, uh, situations. And as a consequence, you know, will at the very least, you know, reduce their dependence on uh, on a footprint in a lot of these major markets, you know, football cities, New York City, Chicago, what have you. Um, How do you think that that ends up playing out? And do you think that has an impact on on our world in, in, in any way? I I think as we talk about before, you know, behaviors that will stick, you know, the using these types of tools to be able to work remotely, you know, that's going to stick to some degree. And listen, you know, people that are much smarter and much more influential than, you know, certainly the three of us, you know, think of somebody like Jamie Dimon. He's been very open about the fact that he sees a significant downsizing in their office footprint in a place like New York City because employees are going to work from either home or People that are in New York are going to maybe want to move to, you know, Austin, Texas, where they've got a big office because quality of life may be better there, what have you. But I do think, you know, commercial office space in major cities will be under some pressure going forward because I think businesses will just need less of it because people will be going to offices in these places less because they'll be working remote or migrating to lower cost, higher quality of life, you know, better weather locations, Florida, Texas, what have you. Um, so I do think there'll be a lasting impact over that. And again, to the extent that's true, it will just create more demand for that digital infrastructure that supports all that stuff. Yeah, I think we have seen the largest exodus in the cities like San Francisco, New York, Chicago. I mean, everybody seems to be moving out. Case moving and point. Remote. 
Who would have ever thought? Yeah. Who would have exactly? Ever yeah, but it's also a great opportunity to for tenant improvements and building on the existing platforms, whereby you ha- don't have to reconstruct from from scratch. Peter, what are some of the key takeaways and key lessons that you would like to share with our audience? I think the the telecommunications infrastructure ecosystem, you know, continues to be an incredibly vibrant you know career path for people to consider. And there's all different roles, whether it's finance or engineering, human, you know, human resources, sales, marketing, the full gamut of, of sort of disciplines is available. And, and there are great opportunities in all of those within this, this sector. This sector continues to have growth. You know, if you sort of think about great places to, to have worked over the years, um, find an industry with a tailwind where there's a lot of growth. And it, there's probably, it's probably a fun industry to work in and it will have lots of opportunity. And I think this sector continues to have all those dynamics. So I'd really encourage people to, to think about it as a career path and you know get your foot in the door somewhere and then keep your eyes open for different opportunities within the organization you're working in of things that look interesting to do and, and learn them and you know keep your eyes open to new opportunities. I mean, that, that would be my main advice. Peter, thank you very much for taking the time to join us at the Nomad Futures podcast. Great having you. My pleasure. You. It's been, uh, been a real pleasure. Thank you, guys. This has been great. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back. Currencies will rebound. Businesses will go on. And we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.